Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up, what do we do with AstraZeneca? Take it or not? We speak with Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. What's his plan? And are COVID-19 cases going up in the U.S.? It's all on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. How many out there would like to see our Prime Minister roll up his sleeve and take a shot of AstraZeneca vaccine? Sure, he may not qualify, but who does now? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station keeping us uh, upright and uh, on the air during the Scott Thompson Home Show, week number 54, playing some teenage head uh, in support of uh, Gene Champagne and uh, drummer for Teenage Head and the Killjoys uh, in a Hamilton hospital. Uh, suffering from COVID-19 and is on a ventilator. So uh, our best uh, best wishes and support and love uh, going out to uh, everybody in that circle and uh, hoping he gets through this uh, uh, unscathed, as they say. So, again, just another gentle reminder that uh, this does affect us all and is certainly starting to creep into the younger uh, population uh, as uh, the older population uh, slowly gets vaccinated. The great news, those in long-term ha- uh, care pretty much done. So that has uh, solved the situation there. But uh, Gene is pr- a perfect example of what can happen to those uh, in the younger demographics. I'm going to play you a report here from uh, Tina Trajani from Global and where we are. The situation in Ontario is only getting worse and it's progressing quickly. That according to the scientific director of the COVID-19 science advisory table. In a report out last night, Dr. Peter Uni says new daily infections are at around the same number as the height of the second wave. Variants of concern now make up the majority of new cases and it's hitting more people in their 40s and 50s. That has shifted from older seniors who've been targeted in this first phase of vaccinations. That's resulted in a steep drop in infections and deaths. Uni says the longer the province waits to tighten up public health measures, the more painful another shutdown will be. He says restrictions will need to be in place for much longer periods of time. Tina Trajani, Global News. Uh, Going to start, let's bring in Dr. Martha Fulford, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you very much. So obviously, since you're you're specializing in pediatrics, uh, let's talk about the kids uh, for a sec as we start off here. We've uh, obviously known throughout the course of this pandemic, uh, it doesn't seem to affect them the way it certainly does uh, older generations. What about new variants and such, especially as we're seeing uh, the demographic move younger and younger as far as in adults of, of who's getting this disease? Yeah. The uh, actually... The spectrum of illness is very similar with the new variants, and we know this from other countries that have already had uh, their spike of, of the new variants. For example, the B117 that was first identified in the United Kingdom. So if we look at the numbers in the United Kingdom, from Germany, from Denmark, from Sweden, from Switzerland, from Austria, and these are all countries that have already had uh, basically a B117 of the new variants go through. And while it does seem to get it is somewhat more transmissible in terms of the spectrum of disease and the and the vulnerability it's the same so children 
are still, for the most part, not being seen to get severe disease at all. And and that is, is very reassuring. So we've seen that, as I say, from the other countries. And in addition, for the United Kingdom and Scotland, where it was first seen and where it first went through the population, what we also did not see was that schools were amplifiers. So again, it's behaving the same, the, the new variant, if you want to call it, compared to, say, classic. But it does seem to be uh, more transmissible so that the numbers do go up. But again, so, it's, it's predominantly the, 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 the seniors, again. Yeah. So, uh, again, um, largely the same as far as the way it translates into kids. Do we know any reason Correct. why yet? You know, we know why the, it seems uh, it doesn't affect them as much as older adults, for example. We, we don't. I've seen hypotheses, and probably the one that maybe has the most uh, teeth behind it, so to speak, is that children have fewer of the receptors in the respiratory tract that the virus binds to. There are other viruses, though, where we see this, uh, where children are, are almost no uh, clinical manifestations, and, and adults and older people are much more likely to be very sick. And well, one example I can think of right off the top of my head is hepatitis, often entirely symptomatic in a child, whereas in, in older people it really can be quite an unpleasant illness. It may be something to do with the maturation of the immune system, but it's one of the ironically good news stories of the pandemic uh, is that for, for younger children, for adolescents, and, and really for younger adults, uh, it's essentially a very benign virus. Obviously, there are always some exceptions, as is true of every infectious disease of every virus, including influenza. But by and large, younger people are spared severe outcomes. Uh, can we learn from that? Can this be part of the solution? That's a very interesting question. Uh, yes, if we could figure out why there's, there, for example, if it's uh, that the um, virus isn't binding as well, and if we had, uh, if we could develop a, a medication that preferentially bound those ahead of time, then the virus wouldn't have a binding site. So yes, understanding why some people are more vulnerable or have a much more severe response does help us then target therapies. That is still a work in progress. Uh, obviously, we're seeing increases in those uh, middle-aged uh, and younger adults. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this due to the variants? Is this due to the fact that we've just uh, we've managed to vaccinate the seniors, certainly in long-term care, and working on those in Hamilton now, seventy plus? So, yeah, I, think um, it's a, I, I think it's both actually. Um, because the variants are more transmissible, the denominator is larger. In other words, we have more people out there with the virus. Many will be asymptomatic, but that that with a really large denominator, you're always going to have uh, that that group of people that do get sick. And it's it's a little strange. It's a good news story that we're seeing in the younger people, but it tells us the vaccines are, are remarkably effective because the demographic has shifted and as because what we're trying to do of course is prevent severe disease hospitalization and obviously death the fact that the vaccines are working in in, in the population is very reassuring and as we get more people vaccinated that outcome of, of preventing severe disease will have been achieved and at that point the fact that we may have mild case community becomes a lot less interesting and and for somebody like me as an infectious 
specialist. I'm not concerned about mild or asymptomatic infections. That at that point it's equivalent of a common cold. I'm I'm vaccinating as many vulnerable people as we can, so that we don't so that we basically minimize the number of people requiring hospitalization. I don't think it will ever be zero. It's not zero for any infectious disease that we deal with. There are always some people for whatever reason get a very severe bout and, and influenza is a good example. We have young children and young adults who suddenly die of influenza. We don't know why in that person it happened. But if we can get our numbers down to very low and manageable, then I think we've, we've achieved what we set out to do. And sorry about the noise in the background. Uh, ironically, I'm actually at a vaccine for right now vaccinating. I just took a break to do this interview. No, uh, tell us everybody where you are and what that atmosphere is like. I'm at First Ontario Place. Uh, where we set up a large public health vaccine clinic, and I'm actually really, really enjoying it. It's fast, it's efficient, uh, it's people are, are coming through really quickly, and uh, yeah, we're going to hopefully do uh, over 800 just today at this site, and we have the other sites going, so if anybody is worried about the process, it's unbelievably smooth and efficient. Uh, public health should get immense credit for setting this up. And again, we should say Hamilton residents now 70 and older can book Absolutely. through. Absolutely. Come uh, on down. Book through. And come on down. <laughs> yeah. Book yourself first, then come on down. Uh, exactly. And so, yeah, okay. now open to 70 plus. So what yeah. are you injecting down there, doctor? What type of vaccine? At this, at this site, it's the Pfizer. Now, there's the big question. I mean, you're certainly aware of, of what's been happening in the last 24 yeah. hours into AstraZeneca. Yeah. We're, we're on the third change now. Uh, what do you say to people about this? And I guess my first question is, who gets it? Who's left? Well, isn't it, the thing is, as we learn, obviously, things change. It's not that people are lying or, or withholding information. I mean, things are moving very fast. But one of the astonishing good news stories, again, is incredibly we thought vaccine and all of the vaccines including AstraZeneca if you look at the numbers say from the United Kingdom and many millions of doses it was essentially a hundred percent effective preventing hospitalization severe disease and death so that's amazing news as more people have been vaccinated what appears to be a very rare side effect has been identified and I think we still need to learn about it and it's very rare possible clotting and so if if a younger person is very unlikely to have a bad outcome from COVID then clearly you you any possible adverse effect from a vaccine becomes something you have to be cautious about because the vaccine has to be safer than than the disease if um sort of around 55, 60 and older, the risk of COVID and a bad outcome of COVID is so much higher. And quite frankly, the risk of getting a blood clot when you get COVID is so much higher than this very tiny risk. AstraZeneca becomes less risky than than the virus, if that makes sense. Um, Again, if we think of our objective being to prevent disease, hospitalization and death, they, they've all, including AstraZeneca, been very, very good at this. The uh, trial that had, when, when they ran the trials, they have obviously very limited numbers. As it's rolled out across populations uh, with with many more people and, and now into millions, we learn a lot. And that's why it feels that I think information is flip-flop. The trial data itself didn't have a lot of seniors, so that's why there was some hesitation. 
Then you look at how it was administered in the United Kingdom, many millions who received it, and you realize, actually, it does work very well to keep them out of hospital. But again, as more and more people got it, the very rare side effect mostly seen in younger people was identified. And so I can understand thinking, okay, this group of, of our population, very low risk of an adverse outcome from COVID. Not that it'll never happen, but very low risk. So in that group, maybe we won't give them the vaccine that has this very rare side effect because you know, it's, it's that group, the risk from the vaccine might be slightly higher than the risk from COVID. In the older group, the risk of COVID far outweighs any risk from the vaccine. And therefore, you should give the vaccine because it will stop them from getting sick and hospitalized and, and dying from COVID. And, and that's, I think, the and, and the information does change quickly. So, so it does feel, I think, like like we don't know what we're doing. But in fact, it's as not as accumulating week by week. It's remarkable how fast we're learning. So, yeah, but it's it, so Canada, it, it, Canada it, it's has confusing. Been- it gets confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Canada has suspended use of AstraZeneca in those mm-hmm. under 55. So it's those over 55 or 55 and over yeah. that would get this? Yeah, I think so. That's, that's how I've interpreted it. I haven't seen the final recommendation in the end, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, another that. question for yeah. you, Doctor, and, and yeah. this is obviously outside your wheelhouse, but, you know, I, I think the confusion is coming in here, obviously, and, and as you as you quite uh, rightly point out, I mean, more and more information is coming out, and we want the latest information. Mm-hmm. I think what where, where people really get confused is, you know, once it gets to a government body, then we either get the yay or the nay. Uh, and, and what we have is we have conflicting information from Health Canada, one federal government body, and then uh, NASI, which is the National Advisory Committee on mm-hmm. Immunization. I and, I, and I completely understand that these are two separate units, and this is great because one might catch something, the other doesn't, and that's all good. But when it comes time to the messaging and, and getting the message to Canadians, they have the two of them completely confused all Canadians, because you have two government bodies giving you conflicting information. I understand they're coming at this from either end of the stick, but when it comes time to get the message out to Canadians, they've created this scenario. They've added to it. it, it I, 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 it's, the messaging hasn't been great. I, I really can't defend it. No, I understand. And, you. Also, and, I, and it's too bad, actually, because if we focused in, if we sort of took a step back about fussing about it, and actually said, oh, if, if the outcome that we want is prevention of severe COVID, all of them are very good. It, they're all excellent. They're all close to 100%. That's Pfizer, it's Moderna, it's AstraZeneca, and it's the Johnson & Johnson. You can then start to you know, tease out adverse effects versus adverse effects because all of them have some adverse effects, mm-hmm. and, and it's a risk-benefit. But, yes, the messaging... Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure I can say that the things are changing fast. It would be nice if we had consistent messaging because I do think it leaves people confused and slightly suspicious. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate given overall we have amazing vaccines that, that for me, I didn't think it would happen this quickly. If you had asked me a year ago, I did not think we would have such yeah. effective vaccines this quickly. And that they're all so good at preventing severe outcomes. And once we've prevented the severe outcomes and we don't have these pressures on our hospitals, really everything we've done for the last year, we've succeeded, mission accomplished. And so, again, I mean, if I, I do hope that the messaging gets clarified, 
But for, for me as an infectious disease specialist, what I'm seeing are, are vaccines that are phenomenally effective at preventing severe disease. Dr. Martha Fulford, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital, Hamilton Health Sciences, and right now down at First Ontario Centre, uh, giving people the jab. And, of course, uh, Hamilton now, uh, residents 70 and older can now book their appointments through the website. And just a reminder, do not go to any of these sites unless... You have an appointment booked. You have to book through the website. And please do not try to book unless you are in uh, the suggested age group, which is now anybody over 70 years of age. Thank you so much, doctor. Here's today's daily commentary. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's COVID-19 vaccine portfolio rollout just got a lot more complicated for every single Canadian this week due to even more conflicting information coming from two federal government bodies, that being Health Canada and the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, with regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Let's try to follow the bouncing ball. At first, it was Health Canada who said it should not be used in those over 65 due to lack of research, then later confirmed it was effective and safe. Then some European and Scandinavian countries suspended its use, some for those under 65, citing safety concerns around blood clotting. Then the United States, which is still to approve the drug for emergency use, said it was more effective than it originally thought, but then arrived at that conclusion with insufficient data from the manufacturer. A load of that is arriving from the U.S. now. When I started my show on Monday, the info was AstraZeneca was cleared, all good. By the time the show ended, it had been suspended for those under 55 in Canada. I understand it's a fluid global pandemic, but why can't two federal government agencies, that being Health Canada and NACI, get on the same page or at least coordinate a common message that informs instead of completely confusing us all. Because our Prime Minister is more focused on his social issues to win the next election than he is in saving Canadians. I'm Scott Thompson. They're trying to underscore it's a minimal risk, but they want to pause here as a precautionary measure while they do more research and while they have more discussions with AstraZeneca as to the efficacy and some of the issues that they're seeing. Just last month, the uh, the guidelines were uh, don't give this to people over the age of 65, and now it's under the age of 55. So there's a lot of confusion, but doctors are trying also to make sure that people understand that you're more likely to get this within the first 14 days after vaccination. So if you got the vaccination 20 days ago, you should be out of the woods uh, and there shouldn't be an issue. Uh, and, and that's what doctors are trying to help everybody understand, that they're just doing this pause to see what the risk benefit is uh, and, and do that assessment until they have more information. That's Global's Michael Couture. Uh, talking about the confusion in and around AstraZeneca, and you know, third time we've seen uh, them change the the position on AstraZeneca. Certainly, the company hasn't done the best, uh, but we do have to remember this is an ongoing fluid situation, and things continually change. 
and, and I think we can understand that and we can accept that, especially having experienced this global pandemic for uh, over a year now. I, I think what Canadians are, are really upset about as well is that once we get this information, we have to have some sort of a consistent message. And what happened yesterday is we have two different government, federal government uh, agencies, one being the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, and Health Canada giving two conflicting reports on something. And again, I, I can understand they are two separate agencies. That's great because they look at it through two different sets of eyes, uh, which is fabulous. But in the end, their messaging with it, with, with simply the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, their messaging is creating way more confusion than, than is warranted here because not only is the information changing, which, you know, and advancing, uh, which is great. The problem is we have two government agencies who, uh, who it appears do not even speak to each other when it comes to what kind of consistent messaging do we want to present to Canadians. And now all of a sudden we've got hesitancy on our hands and rightly so because people are confused. Again, I think people accept that things change. What they don't accept is when you have two government agencies that are contradicting each other. Let's bring in Dr. Mark Roger, physician in chief with McGill University Health Center, chair of the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences with McGill University. Doctor, thank you for the time. I uh, hope you're doing well. Very well, thank you. Happy to help. Can you sh shed any light on to why, and again, I can understand why these two organizations are coming at it from a different angle, but before the, the information goes out the door, somebody at least take a look at, at what the objective is here. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as you said, uh, it, it is a very fluid situation. Uh, you know, um, the, uh, the, 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 the condition that uh, we're worried about uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine is called, uh, vac it's, got, it's a mouthful, vaccine-induced prothrombotic uh, immune thrombocytopenia. And uh, it, it is, it's, it, it, you know, it, it was first described uh, less than a month ago, and the first publication related to it, uh, not even in a peer-reviewed journal, was released yesterday. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're continually sort of trying to get a handle on uh, the information that, uh, that, that's coming out relative to the, to the uh, complications associated with, uh, with these vaccines. Uh, and... Um, you know, it's it, it's a rare complication. Uh, the the current numbers and 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 uh, you know the numbers are also not uh, uh, precise quite yet, but they look to be in the sort of one in a hundred thousand range uh, for developing this very rare but very serious uh, complication, and mainly in folks less than fifty five years old. Um, so yeah, very fluid situation, uh, rare but serious complication. Uh, that certainly muddies the water in terms of uh, uh, individual decision-making and decision-making by uh, policy uh, makers and, and, and governments. So uh, health, uh, Canada has now suspended the use of AstraZeneca for those under the age of 55. So who's left to get it? Is it now 55-plus that gets AstraZeneca? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, uh, the, the, this complication, this very rare but serious complication, uh, so far has only been reported in, in, in the younger age groups, uh, mainly 55 uh, and less. And with COVID, you know, we've also got to recognize that, uh, and I think it's well appreciated by the public now, that the older you are, if you get COVID, the higher your risk is of death. So the average 80-year-old, if they get COVID, has an over 30% chance of dying from COVID if they get it. Whereas the average uh, less than 55-year-old, it's less than 1%, and the average less than 30-year-old is less than 0.1% or 1 in 1,000 risk of dying if they get COVID. So, you know, we we need to get a handle on uh, the frequency of this very rare but serious complication um, and uh, and in different age groups so that uh, individuals, again, and policymakers and governments can make rational decisions about uh, what, uh, whether to, uh, you know, take that that, uh, small but serious risk. Uh, many uh, are being offered this, especially in the uh, the younger, older demographic, for lack of a better phrase. So yeah. if you're a person in their mid-50s, 57, 58, do you get this? Do you get AstraZeneca or do you wait for the Pfizer and Moderna? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you, you, you recognize that your risk of dying if you get COVID is around 1%. You recognize that the risk of this complication uh, you know, uh, it, it currently is estimated to be one in a hundred thousand, uh, and and you make a decision about whether you want to take the AstraZeneca vaccine now, or wait until uh, you get access to a Pfizer, Moderna, and and we heard uh, this morning uh, the government is uh, accelerating the Pfizer, uh, Moderna delivery timelines, mm-hmm. uh, so that's great news. Um, you know, it it is it is. Uh, you know, we do have to step back a bit as well. You know, uh, a year ago, we would have considered it a miracle that we would have had vaccines within a year. Um, so, you know, we, we, it, it's been a very challenging year for everybody, um, but, uh, but we should be grateful that we have these options for sure. So uh, obviously heading into an Easter weekend, variants uh, and and other religious weekends as well, holiday weekend, um, and we remember what it's been like in the past. We we certainly lost this time last year as well and those subsequent uh, holidays and such. And after those holidays, two weeks after, we saw surges. What are you expecting here uh, after this holiday? Yeah, well, I think we're we're witnessing surges uh, in Ontario. We're witnessing the beginning of another surge uh, in Quebec. So we're we're hoping that people will uh, follow the guidelines and uh, wear masks and uh, social distance and uh, you know respect uh, the rules. Uh, with, with today's news about further vaccines being released, uh, you know, we we we, we it looks like it's looking like there's light at the end of the tunnel, and we might all have a good summer. Um, but uh, but we certainly need to to respect the guidelines and the rules. Dr. Mark Roger, Physician-in-Chief, McGill University Health Center and Chair of the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences with McGill University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well. My pleasure. When we return, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, will be joining us. We're coming back. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Says he's done for 54 weeks. Sloan, courtesy of Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He is on the line with us now. Going to talk about uh, their party's economic recovery plan. Aaron O'Toole with us now. Aaron, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, it's good to be with you, Scott. It was great to hear a little Sloan to, to start the interview off. Sure, there we go. Uh, so I've been dying to talk to you for a long time. I'm a guy in my, uh, and we'll get to the recovery plan. I'm a guy in my 50s, uh, mid-50s. You know, I remember when the conservatives were a little right of center. I remember when the liberals were just left of center. And, of course, the NDP farther left than that. Now it seems the conservatives are firmly on the right. The Liberals are firmly on the left, eating the lunch of the NDP. The NDP's gone off into some even farther left land beyond that. My question is, why the extreme politics? What about the people in the center? And doesn't that represent the majority of Canadians? Uh, I've even called the Conservative Party recently your grandfather's Conservative Party. Where's the center here? How come the extremes are controlling the conversation? Well, I'm sitting right on the center as I speak to you, Scott. And in fact, I've used the line, take a look at the Conservative Party, because we're not your grandfather's Conservative Party anymore. In fact, uh, I've been growing the party, reaching out to new Canadians, women, members of the LGBTQ community, uh, people that are worried about our prosperity, the poor response on the vaccine rollout. Anyone who has these worries uh, about the country's future are welcome in our party. I'm the first leader from Southern Ontario since 1947 for the Conservative Party. I'm a kid from the suburbs of Toronto that served in the military, worked in the private sector, and I'm going to get the country back on track. So I think I'm occupying the centre, and the other parties are are generally all on the ideological left, and I don't think that's what we need coming out of COVID. I think Canadians will be happy to hear you uh, say that. Uh, Why does it seem then that the opposition dictates the narrative of the Conservative Party, whether it's back to abortion, whether it's a climate change or a lack of a climate change plan? It seems we're hearing more about them, uh, more from them about the Conservative Party than we are the Conservative Party and their younger vision, for lack of a better phrase. Well, it's interesting. Some people don't want us to change, Scott, and don't want us to include more people in our our movement. But I'm the leader, and I do. In fact, the big speech I gave at my convention, the third line of my speech, a half-hour speech, was our party must change. We must have a serious plan for climate change. We must make sure that we're the party for aspiring new Canadians, young people coming out of school with lots of debt and uncertain job prospects. We need to involve more working Canadians. I, I in fact, want to win seats in Hamilton and Windsor because we're the only party that's really proud of what we make in Canada, whether it's steel, aluminum, auto. Um, We want to be a party for Canadians that want to provide a good life to their kids and grandkids. And uh, I'm, I'm in the process of modernizing, reaching out, meeting with unions each week, trying to build trust with groups that maybe haven't trusted the Conservatives in the past. That's my role as leader is to make sure I represent all Canadians. And some people don't want us to modernize, but the response is great. People are really, really excited to see us reaching out. What do you say to those Canadians who, 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 don't think, who think that you don't believe that climate change is real or your party doesn't? How do you respond to that? Well, I've worked on more environmental issues than Mr. Trudeau or anyone in his cabinet. It's important to me as a, as a father of young kids. I worked on environmental issues 
as a lawyer in the private sector in Toronto, I, I hosted Earth Day for my law firm, for goodness sakes. I worked on renewable projects. And I think we can get our emissions down without a tax on the poorest Canadians or small business, while also making sure we support energy jobs, manufacturing jobs in Ontario. We need a smart plan to get emissions down with larger emitters. And we're going to be launching that in the next few weeks because I don't just read the things put in front of me like the Prime Minister does. I make sure I build a team. I get great input. And we're going to have policies, including on climate change, that I think Canadians will say, hey, the Conservatives have a new leader and a new new approach. And that's why I hope more Canadians take a second look at the Conservative Party. It seems climate change is the number one issue for the Liberal Party. How are you going to get us out of uh, this global pandemic? What happens moving forward? What's your plan? What's your What's your priority here? Well, this is what I launched recently, Scott, the Canada Recovery Plan. I think all Canadians are frustrated to see us in 50th or 60th place on vaccine deployment. We have to try and lead the world on the economic re- rebuilding from COVID. So a five-pillar plan, a plan to focus on jobs, a million in one year and more beyond that, including saving small small business and Main Street who are going to need some specific packages, a transparency and anti-corruption law, because we've seen whether it's the We Charity or SNC-Lavalin, there's too much access for a select few in Ottawa and people are losing trust in institutions. So anti-corruption law is number two. Number three, we have to have a mental health plan. The one thing I hear the most, Scott, is the toll on mental wellness, on mental health for young people and others that this pandemic has had. I've worked on these issues since I left the military, working with vets and first responders on mental health. So I will have a national mental health action plan. Fourth, we'll be get, making sure that we have domestic vaccine capacity. We're ready for a crisis in the future. And fifth, getting our economy back on track, getting back to a balanced budget over a decade, because we're going to have to help people in the short term. But we also can't hand our kids half a trillion dollars in debt. We have to have a plan to get back to balance over the next decade. That's our Canadian recovery plan. And I think it's exactly what we need post-COVID. Uh, uh, the Liberals have talked about a budget coming out uh, mid-April. We certainly remember what happened when they reset things last time between the first and second wave. Uh, there, was, there was thoughts that there might be an election there, but that window slammed shut pretty quick. Uh, obviously, as I said, a budget coming up. How do you avoid getting caught in the trap of triggering an election? Uh, I think everybody knows by now the Prime Minister wants an election to to, to fortify his government into a majority position. However, doesn't want to be the ones to call it. That will be the opposition. So how do you, how, how do you, uh, balance, uh, criticizing the government on whatever comes out in April, plus not falling into the trap of calling an election? Well, good question. <clears throat> That's why I launched the Canada Recovery Plan. We want to talk now about a plan to get life back to normal, get people working in all parts of the country, address some of the challenges like mental health. So I'm talking a lot about it. I'm glad you asked about it, Scott. The good thing is it looks like Mr. Singh has already said he's going to support the budget either way. So Mr. Trudeau, if he does want to orchestrate an election, which uh, he's been indicating through a ver- variety of ways, he will have to do so himself. We will continue to push for recovery and a planned better response on vaccines and other things. And we don't think an election should be held until Canadians are safe and we can turn the corner on COVID. And we're going to continue to do our job. So I don't think there'll be an election, but we'll be ready for one if he does trigger one. 
All right, last question. I know you got to run. Uh, what about Canada's energy industry? We're hearing uh, disruptions possibly for Line 5. We certainly know what happened with Keystone. Where does this leave Canada's energy sector? Well, it's in a precarious situation. Line 5 would be devastating for Ontario and Quebec. All the fuel that uh, Pearson uses, for example, is, is refined in Sarnia and, and comes through Line 5. We Southwestern Ontario... Uh, people that are in rural communities that use propane, they would all be devastated. And this is a line that has run safely for decades. So we have to improve our relationship with the United States. It's really atrophied under three presidents now with Mr. Trudeau at the helm. So the Conservatives, we just created a a Canada-U.S. Economic Committee to try and improve the relationship, make sure we show the value of Line 5, both for Michigan and for, uh, for Ontario and Quebec, And Canadian energy is the most ethically produced in the world. We should also be proud of what we do in our country, particularly when it provides for for millions of Canadians and the well-being of their families. Aaron O'Toole has been with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, telling us about his economic recovery plan uh, and to get us out of COVID-19. Aaron, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Look forward to coming back. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The case involving the arrest of George Floyd and, of course, his death uh, continues on. And uh, during uh, the first day, the video was actually shown that we've all seen that eight minutes and 46 seconds, which has now been apparently extended longer. Uh, and, and of course, this case monumental and drawing even more attention to the situation in the United States. Uh, many are asking questions different this time, or will we see more of uh, what we have in the United States? These cases go on, and there's a verdict, and nothing really changes. To talk more about all of this, let's bring Andrew Fergirelli with, uh, on air, a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on uh, how this trial is starting? I understand the video has been shown. I I can't imagine anyone watching this and not being uh, gripped by what has happened, uh, especially after seeing it, uh, you know, a few times. Uh, Your thoughts on what happened in the early stages of this? Well, it proceeded exactly as I thought it would, and as I think most of us in the legal community expected it to. Uh, Everyone has seen this video. Most, if not all, the jurors sitting on the trial have agreed they've seen it. It's their most powerful piece of evidence, and it's exactly what you would expect them to lead off with on day one. Uh, So it it proceeded as I expected on day one with with their, uh, uh, their biggest piece of evidence and their most uh, powerful piece of evidence leading off. Does this still have the impact it once did when we first saw it? How could it not? I, I, exactly. How could it not? I mean, you're literally watching a life uh, be taken away on camera. And it's just, it's one of these um, pieces of media that, that is going to, in a sense, live forever because of the power of it. I've seen it multiple times. I don't think it's gotten any less um, uh, impactful for me, and I, I would expect most people are in that boat. Uh, it's interesting now we're starting to hear from uh, more than just the officers uh, involved in their perspective uh, from, for example, a 911 dispatcher and a firefighter. What can you t- What can you say about what they've had to say? 
so what's interesting if you take uh, each of them is that they their their evidence sort of goes beyond uh, their uh, initial sort of eyewitness accounts of what's happening that day. It spirals into issues that you expect are going to be litigated later in the trial. For example, you have the evidence of the 911 dispatcher who uh, goes and takes the step of speaking to her supervisor uh, about uh, uh, their view of, of how uh, bad this seemed to them. And, and you actually had the line, look, you can call me a snitch if you want, but uh, and this is going to go later towards the defense argument that uh, the officer, uh, Officer Chauvin, was was just doing what he was trained to do. Well, here you've got the prosecution leading a piece of evidence of a trained police uh, uh, officer or a trained individual uh, who's used to seeing this sort of thing uh, uh, being struck at the time uh, by these actions as being beyond the pale of what they're used to, to seeing. Uh, and especially with the firefighter that was standing by and 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 tried to offer advice and and was told to stand down. Exactly, exactly. That's powerful. I mean, their eyewitness accounts of uh, of what happened would have been powerful on their own. But you've got the video that shows that. Here, the real impact of their evidence, I think, is to frame for later in the trial any argument that uh, what was going on. Uh, uh, was just pursuant to training. I think these are the first shots from the prosecution that are going to try to dispel that defense theory. Uh, we've, you know, unfortunately, Andrew, this is an ongoing situation, uh, especially in the United States of America, and, and there's a long history. We certainly know all of that. Uh, much like a mass shooting, we often ask if things will be different now. Um, with this situation and the death of George Floyd, the fact that there is that that eight minute forty six second video does is it different this time? Does it change things? Because again, we can look back to that video and it will take us right back to that time. Yeah, I, I think there's two questions to unpack. There is this different? Yes, in the sense that here you you had that video, which essentially put a damper on all but the most extreme voices that would normally uh, come in in favor of the police. You had very right-wing media in the United States simply not being able to justify it, uh, which made it different, uh, many would say unfortunately, but different uh, than a lot of other cases where uh, young black men or young black women have been killed uh, in interactions with the police here, you have this incontrovertible piece of evidence that makes it different, that just isn't there in other cases. It forces us to watch. Will it get better from here? I don't know that any of us can answer that. What I can say is that from my vantage point, um, the, the public nature of the criminal defense, uh, of the criminal justice system can only help uh, exposing this, all, all of this to the light. What about reaction in America to this, uh, whether it's those that are, you know, in the city watching this go down or those that are watching in America from from other parts? Uh, how much is everybody watching this? I expect so. Um, yeah. it, I expect there will be lulls throughout the proceeding where uh, people's attention may not be as focused, but there will be flashpoints when all the focus brings it back. Many of us uh, are still in lockdown in places, so uh, there's the, the, the ability to give attention to it. 
uh, where you wouldn't be able to in, in non-lockdown situations. Uh, but day one where the video gets played, of course, that's going to capture everyone's attention again. Uh, if Officer Chauvin testifies, that would call everyone's attention again. And of course, closing arguments and the verdict will be the large flashpoint. So I think there are going to be multiple points over the next month because the trial is going to expect it to go about four weeks. There will be multiple times when everyone's attention will be focused in, in Minneapolis. What about the fate of the other officers that were there watching this go down? Um, I, I think it's going to be dependent in, in to some degree on what happens with with Officer Chauvin. I mean, like, there's no doubt that from the prosecution's point of view, this is the case that they're going to, that they're trying first, that they need to try first. Um, If there's a conviction here, it wouldn't surprise me if there are some sort of plea arrangements that happen with the other two cases. Um, Simply put, while those officers are there and the prosecution will have a theory that they have some culpability as well, they're not the big fish that the prosecution needs to go after. Uh, Andrew Fergirelli's been with us, lecturer with the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto. Do you think either way, Andrew, that uh, when a verdict does come down, there's going to be unrest? I certainly think there's going to be unrest if there's going to be a full acquittal. I I don't think there's any way around that. Um, There's a history of that in the United States and 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 with the power of the video and and what this case meant for uh, uh, for people in the United States in the aftermath, I can't imagine uh, that if there's an acquittal, there won't be some sort of um, unrest. Uh, I don't know that uh, that you would get any similar unrest if there's a conviction here. Um, just from my sense of it, there there just hasn't been any sort of counter backlash here. Um, it just, again, and we keep coming back to it because it calls for it, but the power of that video, it becomes very difficult to justify uh, the sort of feelings that would lead someone to um, uh, create unrest because this officer was convicted of something. Andrew Fergirelli has been with his lecture with the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto, commenting on the trial that is ongoing involving the death of George Floyd. Andrew, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You as well, Scott. Take care. All right. Uh, yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry out in uh, beautiful British Columbia announced uh, sweeping new restrictions in place, including on in-person dining at BC bars and restaurants. This is very similar to where uh, parts of Southern Ontario are already uh, with the gray lockdown uh, version uh, that you're seeing in, in the hotspots here. Uh, but to get more detail, let's bring in uh, Richard Zussman, reporter for Global NBC and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yep, great. Thanks for having me, Scott. So give us a bit of an update. What's happening in beautiful British Columbia? Yeah, so unlike Ontario, BC has done a province-wide approach for much of the pandemic in terms of when restrictions happen, they happen BC-wide, not in specific areas, as you've seen in, in Hamilton and the rest of Ontario. And so what we saw yesterday was as our case counts continue to climb, our hospitalizations continue to go up province-wide, uh, we are putting in place what the province and Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer, is describing as a circuit breaker. So you mentioned the restaurant. So uh, for much of the pandemic, pandemic, we've had in-person dining in restaurants in BC. For a while, it was the only jurisdiction uh, 
on this side of Atlantic Canada that had that. And so that's no more starting today. So no more in-person dining in BC, but patios are okay as well as delivery and takeout. Uh, There's also a crackdown on uh, group fitness classes. So across the province, there were some group fitness classes that were still allowed. They are no longer allowed. Uh, And the big one that grabbed a lot of headlines was the closure of uh, Whistler Blackhole. And there's going to be a lot of questions here about why that didn't happen before spring break. We know a lot of people in BC traveled to Whistler to go skiing. We also know some people came from outside of the province, and we've seen a massive increase in cases connected to the ski resort. So the resort uh, is now closed uh, as the province sort of grapples with uh, trying to get cases under control. Uh, How big an issue was uh, spring break and people traveling there to ski and such? Huge. And, And the province is reeling from it now. You know, some of the guidance we got uh, from the provincial health officer was anyone who traveled outside of your health authority, so we have five sort of large health authorities in the province, if you're not feeling well, don't go to work, stay at home from school, go get tested immediately. Uh, It is the strongest language we have heard on that, and we know there is deep concern around the school system uh, and around workplaces that people travel during the break Uh, and have moved the virus around the province, uh, and there is deep concern about what sort of lasting impacts that will have. Where are schools now in BC? How are they faring? Yeah, so we had our spring break on time, unlike Ontario. There was no movement on that. So most kids are back in class after a two-week spring break now as of yesterday. And so we haven't seen these sort of exposure events in schools because kids have been away. So in-class teaching is on. One shift that has happened, and we're still trying to sort through the language, is a mask mandate uh, in classes. So when the province originally amended a mask mandate, every kid from grade four and up in BC was required to wear a mask in the classroom, but they were exempt if they were sitting at their desk. That rule has now changed in Surrey, second biggest city in British Columbia, just outside of Vancouver. Uh, And it looks like it's now changing province-wide, although the guidance on that was unclear. But there's been a big push from parents towards and teachers and staff that having a very clear and more specific mask policy, similar to what we see in Ontario. Um, I know there's nuance in in districts and grades and things like that, uh, but uh, we're sort of pushing towards uh, a more... Uh, strict mask policy in BC classrooms. Are you surprised that, you know, considering it's been a long time since, you know, the the first wave that we've known that masking has been a huge uh, benefit uh, in keeping the transmission of cases down. I remember come September, masking was mandatory uh, in Ontario schools. Obviously, that didn't happen until later. I believe it was December uh, for BC. And even then, as you said, with some limitations, who's been resistant to the masking, considering it seems to be embraced uh, across the country? Dr. Henry has been, and she has been consistent in her language around uh, that the masking is just one piece of the puzzle. The other part in all of this is her concern around the reaction to students who cannot wear masks. And this seems to be hitting ahead a bit here in British Columbia, that Dr. Henry is resistant to put in a mandate for masks because she's worried that kids that cannot wear masks for physical or mental reasons will get bullied because of it. It seems to be a really strange balancing act she is trying to strike there. I think there so, are so let me get this straight, Richard. This is she doesn't want masking not because of scientific reasons or the pandemic reasons, but she doesn't want those kids picked on. It's bullying. It's a bullying it. issue. 
and that's part of it. And, and Dr. Henry has been clear that she doesn't believe that masks uh, scientifically are uh, a shield around COVID. You know, she's like all health officials have spoken about layers of protection, distancing, hand washing, mask wearing is part of that, uh, physical barriers when possible. And taking that next leap to mandate them in school seems to be a larger challenge around, like you mentioned, bullying and uh, the uh, resistance for people who do not wear masks. It's one of those things that a lot of us here in British Columbia have struggled to wrap our head around because the push from the public and from teachers and from parents is all towards wear your masks in all places in schools. And right now it's strongly, strongly encouraged. People are being encouraged to do it, but they are not required to do it. And therefore, if a student doesn't wear it, there's no punishment associated with that. You know, Richard, I find this fascinating because out here, uh, many in opposition will hold Dr. Henry as uh, up on a pedestal as the person who has done the best job on managing this from a uh, provincial perspective. Uh, Many have said because she's a doctor and, and, and she's speaking as opposed to politicians. But again, you know, as I compare numbers and you, you, you dig deeper into this, I mean, it is hard to compare provinces. But on the other hand, to, to not agree with, I would say, the majority of the science I've seen says the mask is the one thing you can do that will great, that will make a, a, a huge uh, difference. Are you surprised that, uh, can say, and, and I don't know, maybe you're not aware of the praise that she keeps getting out east, but that no, everybody's no, holding no. her up and and then yet she's so, so uh, I'll say, backwards when it comes to masking. Yeah, and that's one of the things where we see her every day. And yeah, we know we put, they put her on the cover of McLean's, and she has been uh, featured heavily in national media. And uh, she was incredibly successful in getting a message across early on in the pandemic. And British Columbia led the way across the country. But now when you look at numbers per capita, uh, British Columbia is last or second last in new cases, in hospitalizations. Uh, you know, part of it is uh, the messaging has gotten tired. And Dr. Henry, in turn, uh, has not adjusted to, as you mentioned, evolving science. So this masking issue has been one that has um, handcuffed her in many ways, that she was very adamant for a long time that masking was not effective and has been very, very, very slow to react to putting in mask mandates. And uh, when we do the postmortem on all of that, this is one of the things that will be criticized. But the reality is we're living within the pandemic now and the guidance is, you know, best you can wear your masks in, in public spaces, indoors. It's a mandate in British Columbia. But yes, there is a bit of backwardness there as well. But the circuit breaker is sort of her hope with some restrictions uh, that we will get back on the right track here. So where are the teachers on this position with the masking of the students? Because, again, here in Ontario, the Ontario teachers unions would be going absolutely ballistic if the, uh, there, weren't ma- there wasn't masking in the schools yeah, made mandatory. Yeah, the union here has been going ballistic as well, and they have been pushing for this. And, and finally, they got some wiggle, uh, some uh, the government to budge on the weekend when in Surrey they mandated masks. And so that was sort of the evolution yesterday was that we're getting closer to a full mandate across all school districts. But again, it's unclear, and we're trying to get uh, some clarification on that today uh, from the province around exactly what it means. But yes, the union has been persistent in calling for a mask mandate that is clear 
as well as better guidelines around physical distancing and virtual options. We have very, very few virtual options at British Columbia for schooling. It's either in-class instruction or no instruction at all uh, for a vast majority of parents. Wow. Uh, Richard Zussman with us, reporter for Global News in British Columbia, talking about new restrictions there. Richard, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me. You too. All right, let's move on and uh, down into the United States. And it's uh, a tough situation there in the sense that we certainly know what they had gone through at the beginning of all of this. And then once the vaccines were available, my goodness, at a at a lightning speed, uh, started vaccinating uh, as many as uh, Americans as they possibly can. So kind of surprising to see these headlines that um, a new U.S. coronavirus cases rise by uh, 12% as the nation braces for a fourth pandemic wave. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Sophia Pendley is with us, Assistant Clinical Professor of Public Health at Sacred Heart University, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. So we know that, and we watched, uh, especially up here in Canada, with envy as the United States has has gone at lightning speed to to vaccination uh, to vaccinate its citizens. Uh, we see the you know the big uh, mass vaccination clinics and such that are going on down there. Uh, are you surprised to see cases going up when you're doing such a great job at, at, at speeding up the vaccine process? Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a little disconcerting to say the least. I. I have a few, I think that you know what we're seeing here is that the promise of the promise of impending vaccines seems to have encouraged you know a, a little bit of relaxing for for some of our public health measures um, and you know vaccines we, you know we have a saying that vaccines don't prevent death and illness it's vaccination so even though we do have have these vaccines available to us you know it, we still are waiting for a large a large portion of the population to receive them. Um, so at this point, you know, it's still kind of premature for us to to relax on those public health measures like social distancing and mask wearing. So you believe this is due to the fact that perhaps a little bit too optimistic about the vaccines rolling in and the dropping of the protocol, the dropping of, of the precautions? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, we have we have vaccine access. And so, it you know, I think some of some of the, the regulations that we've seen um, in various states have been have been relaxed, you know, uh, moving more towards higher occupancy levels of indoor dining and things like that, which leads to, uh, you know, a false sense of security among, you know, the population that these things are are safe to do when you know when in fact we really kind of need to keep keep our guard up for just a little while longer um while while more and more get vaccinated so the past week the national average uh average jumped by 12 percent nationwide as far as infections michigan leading the nation with new cases at 57 percent a 57 percent rise over the past week how concerned are you about that yeah, yeah, it's it's very concerning. Um, it, it is very concerning, and I think that you know, uh, in some in some areas of the country, we're seeing we're seeing some encouraging signs. Um, but you know, in Michigan, and then also in the Northeast where I am, um, we're also seeing a rise in new cases in the past in the past week. And I think, yeah, it's just again, it has to do with relaxing restrictions. The thought that the vaccine is here so we can all sort of breathe a little bit. But, um, 
you know, until we until we get large portions of the population vaccinated, we're we're still going to see these these same issues. Um, what about vaccine hesitancy? Is, is that rearing its head down there? Um, I don't think at this. I mean, yes, I think I think that there's, there's nervousness across a variety of groups, um, agro- you know, across the board. But um, at this point in time, I think that demand is still ahead of supply in terms of vaccines. I don't think that um, I don't think the vaccine hesitancy is is um, an issue as of yet. I think it's more of an access issue to, to vaccinations. But I do think that, you know, once we get to larger, you know, more saturation of the vaccine and, and, and access becomes more available, um, pretty soon we're going to start to see, you know, the true uh, number of people who are, are sort of either waiting it out or just going to flat out refuse the vaccine. And um, any chatter, there's lots of chatter up here because supply is a huge issue. It's it's quite low still uh, about AstraZeneca. I understand in the U.S. it's still to be approved there. Uh, you're using, uh, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna because you have it there. Uh, ha- what's your thoughts on the AstraZeneca and the changing messaging that's that we're seeing around the world? Um, so, yeah, in the United States, we have uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and then the one dose Johnson & Johnson uh, shot um, available. Um, you know, I think that I think that the AstraZeneca vaccine is a good it's a good vaccine. I think they're all they all had a hundred percent vaccine efficacy against hospitalization and deaths in those clinical trials. Um, I think that you know these, there are very very rare reports, in fact, of these of this blood clotting issue following AstraZeneca vaccination. Um, it's not totally clear that these were caused by the vaccine, but I think, you know, I guess the abundance of caution that, that we're seeing could be, um, should be reassuring because it shows that people are continually evaluating new information kind of in real time. Everybody's kind of a, at a learn as you go kind of, um, kind of feel here. So I, you know, I would be reassured in that there are, they are continuing to look at the, uh, look at, data and information as it emerges. Uh, your thoughts on how this is affecting uh, the younger demographics in the United States. Uh, obviously, it was a situation which was devastating to seniors and retirement homes, uh, long-term care, that sort of thing. Uh, we've seemed to have gotten the majority of them vaccinated. In Canada here, we're experiencing more increases now in the younger generations. Is that happening in the U.S.? Yeah, I think so. I think that it is happening in the United States. Um, I would be interested to see, you know, I, I, I think it still remains to be seen as to uh, normally, you know, we have an increase in cases, then then a lag and then an increase in hospitalizations and then and then a lag and then an increase in the deaths. Um, so I'm curious to see you know, how the vaccinations um, of these older groups sort of play out into those hospitalizations and deaths. But I will say that the United States across the board has has high levels of these other uh, chronic disease issues that sort of make their risk for severe COVID a little bit higher. Um, you know, that that's compounded by age, obviously, but I think that it's still, I think it's still really important that even if you're even if you're younger, even if you think that, you know, oh, this is, I, I'm not in my 70s, I'm not in my 60s, I'm, I'm okay, that, um, that it's still really important to, to, keep, to keep your guard up and keep cautious um, 
because you know there are other there are other chronic disease issues that you may that you may have that put you at a higher risk for severe COVID. So we're seeing a, a spike in 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 cases in the U.S. as perhaps people lo- lo- drop their guard as the vac- uh, vaccinations are coming in fast and furious. Uh, Joe Biden, the president, said that uh, uh, hopefully the majority of those that want one will have a vaccination by May or June and, and by uh, the 4th, 4th of July, uh, enjoying backyard barbecues uh, with the family again. With that increase or with that uh, amount of vaccination going on uh, into the spring, do you think this rise will take a hold and create a fourth wave for you? Um, it definitely feels like a like we're in the, a race. <laughs> it's a race yeah. between vaccinating and and co and a virus. Yeah, um, we're in this last leg of this race, and so we don't want to trip at the finish line. I I I hope not. I I'm I'm tend to be a little bit more optimistic. I I really do hope that people just kind of keep on uh, just a little bit longer. Um, but it is. Um, you know, it, it, I am hopeful with um, the, the sort of the, the increase in access and um, the opening of eligibility that the president has called for um, and that the states are kind of working hard to increase availability and eligibility to, to all groups, all adults as soon as they possibly can. Boy, you have to wonder, lots of chatter up here about, and I'm sure in the northern U.S., uh, with the border states that are bordering Canada and the in the U.S. and such, uh, but with Mi- Michigan coming in at 57% of an increase uh, this past week, it doesn't look like the borders are going to be opening up anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I would not, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's probably prudent on, on Canada's part to kind of wait and see how, how things go, especially with those those border states but um yeah but it was interesting doctor because you know at the beginning of this canada was smug and going no we you know let's close the border now it's the other way around you're vaccinated we're not it's like do you guys want us in <laughs> it's a fine balance uh, dr sophia penley with us assistant clinical professor of public health at sacred heart university uh the u.s seeing a spike in coronavirus cases uh, in the last week by about 12% nationwide, uh, perhaps because of dropping the protocol a little too soon. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.